What is going on? It is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Tim Montana over Zoom video. Tim grew up in very, very rural Montana. He didn't even have electricity, no TV, none of that. Uh, but he did have a CD Walkman. And if he had his chores done and he ran out of batteries, he would be able to use his allowance to get new batteries for a CD player. Uh, and he also had a guitar. He talked about songwriting from a very early age, the bands he had in high school, winning the high school talent show with an original song that he had written. He talked about going to the Music Institute in Los Angeles, eventually landing in Nashville. He talks about getting a job at Tootsie's in downtown Nashville, how he met Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top and having Billy Gibbons write and record a bunch of songs on his albums, touring with ZZ Top. We hear about how he met Kid Rock and collaborated with Kid Rock on a couple of Kid Rock songs, as well as one of Tim's records. He has a really cool story about the first time he met Dave Grohl, and we hear all about the new song he just released called Devil You Know. You can watch the interview with Tim on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be amazing if you subscribe to our channel. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, we would love it if you follow us there as well and rate and review the podcast. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with Tim Montana. Hey, what's up, Tim? How are you? Better than I deserve. <laughs> I like that answer. What's going on? I'm Adam. Hey, yeah, good to meet you, Tim. Um, yeah, just sitting here in Nashville getting stuff dialed in and rock and roll, baby. Monday. Awesome, awesome. I'm in Nashville as well, or south of Nashville. Where you at? Uh like Thompson Station area. Okay. I'm in Creep Hall, so I'm right off of 65, right past Thompson Lane. So Oh wow. Fairly close then. That's awesome. I'll be I'll be over in a second. What's on the grill? <laughs> <laughs> nothing yet but <laughs> um awesome well uh again this is about you and your journey in music we'll talk about the new song and yeah everything you have coming up as well cool sweet um hang on. cool um i was saying oh sorry this stupid ai thing just keeps beeping at me um all right so you're originally from montana which is wild that you're born last name is tim montana i mean montana is your last name and born in montana yeah. yeah i had some bad stepdads as a kid and uh a, a childhood abduction and yeah i wanted to get away from any bad men oh, in my, my life so goodness yeah i won't go down the rabbit hole on that but uh i changed my name a long time ago to the state and landscape that raised me instead of the bad men so wanted Dig to it. Uh, well, oh my god get away That's... from that and start over so Wow. Someday they could make a Hallmark, Hallmark movie about my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't get into uh, to that, but I was just curious. Like, so from what I was reading, just you were born and raised kind of in the in very rural Montana. Is that correct? Yeah, we went off the grid when I was about five and television went away. Electricity went away and it was lanterns, candles. And that's when I got a guitar and uh had a little cd player uh took size d batteries and i'd have to do chores to get batteries for my cd player when we go to town but 
Yeah, it was, I didn't know it was tough when I was a kid, but as I've grown up and realized like how nice it is to have things like microwaves and dryers and things that I never had as a child, I was like, wow, you guys got it made. And, uh, yeah, so I, I haven't dug an outhouse hole since I was a teenager. <laughs> I haven't had oh. the need to use an outhouse, but I learned all that as a kid and it kind of helped design me for the music business where everyone's like, it's hard. And I'm like, yeah, it's hard, but it's not as hard. <laughs> right. Yeah, let me tell you about hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, oh my gosh. So you did, uh, you had a guitar though. Yeah. And uh, what, at what age did you start playing guitar? Five or six. But before that, my mom said I was always singing into spoons and banging on pots and pans. And finally they got me a nylon string guitar. And then I remember hearing like, it was, gosh, I think it was around the holidays when I got the guitar. Cause I, with just on a single string, I'd hear Christmas songs. And I could pick it out from hearing it. And I was like, whoa, I can just hear things and make them on the guitar. And it drove my mom nuts because I could play the first verse and chorus of any song, but I didn't know the rest of the song because I have ADD. I'd always just be like, oh, I'm going to learn the beginning of this CCR song or this Easy Top song. I just like hear it and then I'd be able to play it on the guitar, but I never wanted to learn the whole thing. And she's okay. like, Timmy can play the beginning of any song he's ever heard. <laughs> wow. So you can still do that to this day. I would imagine be able to just hear something and know how to play it. Yeah. And that's what's wild is my 15 year old daughter, uh, all of a sudden she has the skill or the curse. <laughs> no way. Yeah. What is, what so, is, does she play guitar as well? A little bit of guitar, but mainly piano. And she's a great singer and she kind of hid it from me. She was embarrassed to sing in front of her dad and this and that. And uh, recently we went and saw the Foo Fighters. She got into Nirvana and the Foo Fighters over COVID and didn't tell me because it was even more embarrassing to listen to the same music your dad did growing up. Sure. <laughs> and so she's secretly watching Unplugged in New York and oh, wow. bought Nirvana shirts that she wouldn't wear in front of me. But I took her. I said, all right, I'm going to take her to meet Dave and the band. I know the guys. And so she got to hang out with Dave Grohl. And everyone was telling me, like, did you tell your did you tell Dave about your single? And I'm like, no, dude, I let Dave talk to my kid. Like that was a bigger bucket list was like my child having time with my hero and her hero. And she went home. And my mom still lives in the single wide trailer house that I grew up and learned to play guitar. And it's specifically Nirvana and Foo Fighters. Like those were my heroes. And in the back room, I heard the guitar playing Everlong. And I just busted the door open and started crying. Because I'm like, oh, in my wow. old bedroom where there's still a Nirvana poster in the single wide trailer, my kid just learned the same song that I did after watching the Foo Fighters. It was really special. That and is she so yelled, cool. She yelled, Dad, don't come in here and start crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow that's a that's such a cool story what a, what a cool thing to you know share with your daughter that's amazing um yeah she's running me out and i'm like hey stop being a jerk because you just got to meet the dude i never got to meet the dude when i was 15 <laughs> right yeah i want to learn how you ended up building that relationship and the one you have with billy gibbons and you've done so oh, yeah. many cool things with kid rock and even the most recent EP, I think you had Kobe Calais on it and like, yeah, just some cool, some cool stuff. Um, so when do you move from you move from Montana, obviously, to then you go to L.A. At what age did yeah. you move to Los Angeles? 18 years old. And that was okay. quite a culture shock going from Butte, Montana and rural Montana and moving right into Hollywood Boulevard. I lived on Sycamore in the same apartment building that Guns N' Roses started out in. So oh, I was wow. like, 
I was like, let's go. And I'd tell this dude, uh, Jose, down at Hollywood Liquors, I'd always be like, uh, I'm going to be famous someday. I'd tell him I was like 18. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd come in there with a fake ID and buy booze from Jose, my buddy. And uh, he's like, man, the last person that told me that was Axl Rose. And he told me it every day. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. how do you then get do you just get in your car and drive to L.A.? Like what took you to L.A. aside from like the music scene? Uh, yeah, I got into music school. So I went okay. to Musicians Institute and my mom was glad because I had a bunch of recruiters hanging out, military recruiters. And uh, she, sure. she said every night she'd be like, please, God, let him get into music school so he doesn't do the military. Because at that point I was off grid. I was a hunter, fisherman, didn't have electricity. I'd run every day in combat boots and was like gung ho as either like either mu- music or military. And then I got into music school and my mom was so happy. So, and uh, to this day, I still support the military because I kind of feel guilty about never enlisting and joining. And I'm like, well, I can serve those that served us. There's other ways for people to serve and you can help out guys that are enlisted and what. So, 100%. So, you moved to LA, go to school at uh, Music Institute or Musicians yep. Institute. Sorry. Um, yep. And are you there for what, like uh, four years? How, how long did you stay in LA for? Uh, I think I stayed for two or three and I tell everybody I failed out of GIT and my musicians Institute, specifically guitar Institute of technology is where I studied to get a, uh, degree in guitar playing, but I failed out twice cause I didn't want to do music reading or theory, but I did get a PhD in partying while I was there. There you go. <laughs> but, uh, so I failed out the first year cause I didn't do those required classes. Went back to Montana, put a band together with my buddies, brought my bass player Boone from LA to Montana and brought my original high school drummer. But in the midst of being back in Montana, I got in a nasty motorcycle accident. I was rear ended on my Harley Davidson by a lady that had a diabetic seizure. And she, uh, tore my ACL, shattered my left leg. I went through a windshield with no helmet and broke the windshield with my spine and my head over the car. So then I returned to LA with a destroyed left leg on crutches to take stab number two at getting through college. And I failed out again, (laughs) this time with one leg, man, if you (laughs) fail out twice, once with one leg and once with two legs, you're failing properly. (laughs) Whoa. So you actually, so then you had a band in high school and everything. So, uh, when you lived there, okay. So what was like, when do you start writing songs? Are you fairly young? Yeah, I was really young and I couldn't, I still to this day cannot remember other people's lyrics and I can't remember half of my own lyrics. So that's why songwriting was better for me. Cause at least if I wrote them, I had better odds of recalling the lyrics. Um, okay. So from a young age, I, I just found a notebook the other day that from high school that I would write songs in and I was hoping they were angstier, but they were for all the hot chicks in high school that I'd write these songs for there. I was like reading it like gross. What, <laughs> who is this guy? What did I think? I was like John Mayer of grunge or something, but um <laughs> I started winning talent shows um, and yeah, I wrote my own material for the talent shows as well. So yeah, I remember winning with a song I wrote that I wrote for a girl called get out of my head. And then I was like, man, I really like this live performance stuff. I'm pretty good at it. So, so, okay. That's incredible. I mean, wow. And then, so you, cause not a lot of people would get up there and play an original song at a talent show. I mean, in front of all your peers to have the courage to do that and then win it with an original. And do it for a girl that was dating all the jocks when I was the nerdy musician country kid that literally rode to school on a short bus because it was the rural rancher bus would take me in on the short bus. I got teased about that and then teased about being a musician. And then I get up there and sing songs for all the popular kids, girlfriends. (laughs) (laughs) Did it work? Uh, You know, they to this day, they all remember it. I'm friends with all these girls still. So they still get a kick out of it. Even my high school principal 
up there was like, man, you just don't know how to quit. He's like you, all the wrestling buzz. He'd be like, I'm going to be an entertainer someday. And they'd be like, whatever, Tim. And he's like, you're <laughs> still going, dude. So I think I've impressed everybody with I'm um, still sticking to the same thing from when I was a child. So Today, hip hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. fire yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade. Life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> this is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Listen to Class of 88 wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge the entire series right now on the Amazon Music app or Audible. You were in LA, you moved back home and you, what, came, pick yeah. up a band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the band. A band. Yeah, back. a lot of band back. We came, we went to Montana to get the drummer. So I'm like, I got a drummer. Let's bring him back. We want to, like, the goal was to play the whiskey in Hollywood. Oh, and get I, him to get the drummer to move back to LA with you guys. Which he did. And I think he made it like 72 hours and left in the night and was like, <laughs> you guys. He's like, this is too much. You guys party way too hard. I am terrified. He might. I think he left a note. That's <laughs> it funny. was like, see ya. And he bailed. And uh, we're still friends to this day too. But uh, then it was just me and my buddy Boone, my bass player, just kind of bouncing around LA, dreaming about playing the whiskey. And then at some point, I finally left LA and moved to the Bay Area and uh, worked in the veterinarian business. Um, I grew up raising bloodhounds in rural Montana. So I got really good with wow. delivering puppies and doing shots and administering stuff. So in Montana, the vet clinic took notice that I was a, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old kid that really knew how to take care of animals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cause I raised them. We had 12 full grown bloodhounds. And, uh, oh my God. One, one of my favorite things about bloodhounds was the Seattle police department came over to get some dogs for their unit. And the dude saw Alice in Chains posters in the bedroom in Nirvana and goes, Hey, we actually found Lane Staley's body. We were the guys that told me the whole story about that. And I was just like, Whoa. So I, we sold them a bloodhound. Um, but that was pretty wild. Cause I was so into grunge, dude. It was like ridiculous. Like I still love grunge today, but I burned out my ears on it when I was a teenager. So I have to do like <laughs> small, do small doses now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Wow. That's wild. So you moved to the Bay Area. Did you have your band up, uh, up in? No, I didn't take the, I didn't take the band. I went up there to kind of just regroup and I knew I wanted to go to Nashville because I met a blind guitarist named Johnny Highland at GIT that shredded 10 times faster than anyone I'd ever seen. And he did it with no distortion. And I was like, I want to go where that guy's going. And he was going back to Nashville. So I went Lived with my brother in the Bay Area, worked at vet clinics, and then I got my settlement from my motorcycle accident, and I was waiting for that check to come in because I was, shit, 19 or 20 and knew that I had a $100,000 check on the way. And, oh, there you uh, go. Yeah, so I was like, yeah, this leg hurts, dude, but I'm about to be loaded. <laughs> and uh, 
yeah, so I bought, once I got the check, I knew I could go to Nashville. So I bought uh, the Guitars of My Dreams uh, recording rig and uh, was a dumbass. So I got a DUI. I was going to buy a car, but instead I got a DUI in my friend's car and then went to Nashville with no driver's license, bunch of guitars, didn't know a soul and had a Pro Tools rig. And I had to get a job frying chickens when I landed in Nashville at Harris Teeter. And so I'd walk every day to fry chickens to try and like, you know, get in the scene and didn't know anybody. And that is one of the biggest highs I've realized in life is moving somewhere where you don't know what's happening, what to expect. And you don't know anybody there like Mm -hmm. that. But that buzz I've had very few times in my life. And it's like scary, but it's cool, especially scary when you don't have wheels or a license. (laughs) Yeah, that that definitely adds to it. I mean, my family and I, we moved to Nashville like two years ago, a little over two years ago. And I remember we, I moved from San Diego and I remember just like getting in the car to drive out here, not knowing anybody and just like straight up having a panic attack for like the first three hours of the drive out this way. I was like, oh my God, like, is this the dumbest decision we've ever made? Uh, but it turned out to be the best, but that's uh, yeah. <laughs> wild. Um, so you get, when you get here, you start meeting people and then are you songwriting with like, what, how do you kind of get your foot in with? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm writing songs. Here. It was really hard to pitch songs behind the counter at Harris Teeter. Cause I had to wear a beard net and a hairnet. And I remember big celebrities would come in there to get lunch. Cause it's right by music row. Uh-huh. I'd be like, Hey, I'm a songwriter. And they're like, yeah, I'll have the honey baked ham pounded in half <laughs> a box of fried chicken. I'll bet you are Montana. <laughs> I was <laughs> always trying to hustle my songs behind the counter in the deli. And, uh, that didn't work out, so I'd go every night to Tootsie's, which is the famous honky-tonk in Nashville mm-hmm. that you know Chris Christopherson and Willie Nelson worked at, and Johnny Cash hung out. And I figured if I hang out there around the bands, maybe I could, could get a gig. And I got I got into a couple fights. I was pretty rowdy back then. I don't really party anymore. But I got into a couple fights, and one of the managers noticed it and was like, hey, do you want to be a security guard here? You're pretty tough. And, of course, at that point, I'm from Butte, Montana, and I'm like, I'm a fist-fighting son of a bitch. And so I took a job as a bouncer, Wow, I'm surprised it didn't go the other way. They're like, yeah, why don't you get the hell out of here and never come back? No, they loved it. They're like, like, that dude's wild. They're like, hey, you want to work here? And uh, so I was a bouncer, a bar back, and then ultimately worked myself into Thursday night on the stage. Wow, that's incredible. That's such a cool spot. Um, And the right when you walk in, I mean, the stage, there's more than one, but you walk in, it's right there. And it's just like, you already, it's already rocking, like right when you walk in the door. Yeah, there, dude, I remember that was probably 2007, something like that. I remember some brawls in that front room one night where some big guy just pulled back and was going to knock me out. And thank God, the singer of the band, I think it was John Stone. I just, as this dude, I'm waiting to go lights out. I just see this fist flying and I just see a cowboy boot intercept and kick the guy in the head. And I'm like, oh, "Uh." wow. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of musicians that saved my ass down there because I would... I thought I was a tough guy, but you know what? Everybody meets their match. <laughs> sure, sure. So are you you're playing at Tootsie's at this point, and then uh, like from there, are you able to meet more people, and then kind of begin songwriting with others? Like, how does your yeah you know your yeah hundred percent started networking and writing songs, and then I met my wife there, and we actually got married on the backstage. Did you really? That's yeah, awesome. she came. She came in Tootsie's, and you kind of got numb to girls hitting on you because the bar staff has to stay till three or four in the morning, swamping the bar. Mm-hmm. And so, girls all the time would be like, "Hey," and hitting on you, and you're just like, "Whatever." I know how this goes. You're gonna go home with that guy. 
but this girl came back twice and I'm like, what's this about? I never had a return customer. And uh, so we met and uh, God, I think it was three months later. And I remember I met one of my old buddies that was a bouncer with me a couple of years ago. And he said, uh, or a couple months ago, and he worked with me back then. And he said, we told you not to marry that girl. Cause we're like, dude, you've known her three months. What are you doing? And we're married, uh, gosh, 16 years now with four kids. Um, wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, so we got married on the backstage at Tootsie's. And then she was the one that's like, hey, you should focus on songwriting. She had a really good corporate job. And she's like, I can pay bills. You focus on music. So she got me to kind of get out of the bar scene a little bit. Because p- playing the cover band scene thing was like, exhausting for me i was like again i'm terrible at learning song lyrics so i'd have my cheat sheets up there and i was like i didn't i felt like i was just burning you know to turn uh the tires are spinning and i wasn't moving forward Uh so uh left there got into uh songwriting a little more and then had my first little tour i put together in montana where i just hired broadway guys i knew and my first three show tour of my career david letterman showed up and showed up Montana and booked me at the Ed Sullivan theater to play the late show with David Letterman. So I was like, that is huh. so wild. He was just, he just happened to be there. Is he from there? Or like, how he did that has happen? A, yeah. He has a house in Shoto, Montana. And I played their 4th of July rodeo. And I remember that was the first time I kind of manifested destiny where I said to my band, I'm like, Dave lives here. What if he shows up and we play the Ed Sullivan theater and I thought about it so much. I started like thinking about it and diving in and sure as shit, he showed up, came to visit with me at the merch table. My mom's telling him the whole time, hey, Timmy grew up without electricity. I saw he was very fascinated with that, you know, mm-hmm. and I think he thought we were like going green and saving the earth. I didn't tell him it was this thing called <laughs> pover- poverty, you know, poverty is another way to live off the grid and save the earth. Uh-huh. Um But yeah, and it was, I went back to Nashville after that, after meeting him. And I remember... The last thing I said to him was, uh, I hope I get to see you on the late show, like being, you know, performing the late show someday. I just went for it. And he's like, man, I really hope that happens. I hope you get to that point. And then, God, it was a while. There was a gap. But I all I had a feeling because I'd step every night and watch the late show. I just had a feeling he was going to call. And I'd just look at my phone and look at my phone. And it was maybe a month or two later. I mean, Guitar Center, Nashville, where everybody is shredding and eyeballing each other and talking shit. Uh-huh. And my phone yeah. rings and it's a New York number I didn't have saved. And I answered and they're like, hi, this is Cheryl Zalickson. I booked for the late show with David Letterman. I'll never forget that phone call because I was walking through Guitar Center like, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> going to the big leagues, baby. Yeah. Wow. And then you got to perform on the late show. Did you play your own songs? Obviously. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. have a manager. I didn't have a booking agent. I didn't have a publishing deal. And we were broke. We had a baby back then and a minivan that was my wife's company van. We drove around in one car. And uh, I remember when we got booked, we went to we maxed out our uh, poor people credit card that day buying steaks because we were so convinced it was going to take off right afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Cha-ching. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, we're, this is it. This is all it takes. One appearance on the Ed Sullivan Theater. And uh, and we went up there and did it. And uh, we, I played a song I wrote by myself called Butte America, which I'm so glad I did. You know, looking back, all I had was my hometown supporting me at that point. And they're still the biggest supporters of me is Butte, Montana. And so I was like, I'm going to pay homage to my hometown. Because what if this is this could blow up and be huge or this could be my only shot? What if this is it? Then I want to pay homage to the people that help, you know, support me thus far. Mm-hmm. And uh so we played it and I thought I'd get home and the phone would ring off the hook. And I think only one booking agent called and he never signed me. And I was oh, like, wow, 
back to the drawing board. But I made a relationship with Paul Schaefer and I met a producer that worked with Bob Seeger uh, shortly after that, that knew I'd been on the late show, Blue Miller, and he agreed to produce my next record, which I had Paul Schaefer play piano on. Wow. And then so, so I always, the, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I mean, from that moment, uh, it obviously wasn't like the phone's off the hook and you're playing everywhere, but to, you got something out of it, it sounds like. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, and- yeah, yeah. And I don't think anything in my career has happened that I'm like, oh, man, I wish that wouldn't happen. I'm so glad that happened. A, it was a learning experience. And B, I know I always networked off those things. I, I would make a connection, even if it was just one. And, you know, mm-hmm. going back to New York six months later to go record with Paul Schaefer, that was pretty damn cool, you know, for a guy like me that didn't know anybody and had no, no idea what he was doing in the music business, just like making it up as he goes. I'm like, let's go record with Paul Schaefer. That's the next step. Yeah. Wow. And what was, when do you meet uh, Billy Gibbons? Was that much later? Yeah, I know that, you have that was, with him. yeah, that was quite a bit later. That was actually 10 years ago on September 13th. I just saw on Facebook, uh, I told Billy it's our 10 year anniversary. So I met him. Oh, in wow. 20, oh, I did 20, see that. I think on your Instagram or something. Yeah. 2013 we met and uh, yeah, that guy's been just the best thing that, that ever happened to me. I love that guy. So how did you meet him? Um, I had a title called this beard came here to party and I just had a little bit of a verse and a chorus written and I walked in to get my beard trimmed in Nashville and this lady, Paula Kay, who I'm dear friends with to this day said, you look like ZZ top. And I said, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, she said, I know a guy that knows Billy Gibbons. And I said, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, (laughs) like all the stereotypical (laughs) things, when I walk in the room, I get that a lot. And by God, I sent her the song. We connected and she sent it to a guy named Tom Vickers, who worked with uh, Billy in Los Angeles on the record label side. And uh, he got it to Billy. And Billy said, I really like this song. Let's meet this guy. And I didn't, you know, at that point, I think ZZ Top was on the Kid Rock tour in 2013. Mm -hmm. Didn't know Kid Rock at that point either. And Billy routed through Nashville on his way to Chattanooga and rolled in the studio and said, I'm going to check this guy out. Let's finish it. And we... Finished the song that day with producer Marshall Altman and my band. It wasn't studio players. It was my guys I had at the time. And yeah, that was September 13th, 2013. That same year, Boston Red Sox were going to the World Series. I don't know shit about sports, but Billy went out that night to a restaurant and a guy came up, my buddy Doug, and said, hey, man, big ZZ Top fan. And Billy said, what do you do? And he goes, I assign songs to sports teams and we happen to be looking for a beard song for the boston red sox and billy goes no way and pulls out a cd that we'd recorded that day here in nashville and 48 hours later that song is licensed on national television we did a quick mix on it and next i know i've never watched a sports game in my life and i'm sitting there glued to the tv watching the red sox as they're playing my song in the background it's crazy that is crazy and then what the predators use it or have yeah, used pred- it. Predators have used it. And there's not a lot of people writing songs about facial hair. So I kind of have the market cornered with that song. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then put on that album. Uh, he's on a number of those songs. Yeah. So, so that's connecting and then continuing, obviously, with the relationship. If you're an independent artist, you may know the struggle of you got these great songs How do I get them in front of record labels, radio DJs, get them on Spotify playlists? How does this happen? Well, friends, this is Adam from Bringing It Backwards, and I'm going to tell you about this amazing website called DropTrack. DropTrack will get you a free press release 
for your music with the new AI powered PR agent from DropTrack. DropTrack has helped thousands of independent musicians actually get their music heard by connecting them with record labels, radio DJs, Spotify playlist curators. And now DropTrack is leveraging the power of AI to help you promote your music. It's super simple. All you have to do is upload your song and then DropTrack will write a professional personalized press release that describes your music all in just seconds. Then DropTrack helps you share it with the world. You might ask yourself, Adam, why do I need a press release for my music? Well, you need a press release because you need to be able to describe your music in words. You can send the press release to record labels or radio programmers, media outlets, and these industry folk and your fans will actually be able to read about your music before they even press play on the song. This will also get them interested in your music so they want to listen to it. A really good friend of mine has been an independent musician for a number of years, written so many great songs, but he's like, why do I need a press release? So I explained to him the importance of the press release, being able to describe the music. People know what they're getting into before they even press play. He drops his song into drop track. It writes this beautiful press release. Then all he has to do is just send it out. Super simple. What are you waiting for? Get a press release for your own song. Try it now for free at www.droptrack.com. That's droptrack.com. That's D-R-O-P-T-R-A-C-K, droptrack, droptrack.com. Check it out today. Yeah, that same year that song hit for the Red Sox and it got, it became a huge press storm. We were in USA today. We were all over the place. Um, uh, Billy asked me to play the rhyme in an open for ZZ top. And then I started touring with them and I did uh, the Hellraisers tour beer drinkers and Hellraisers, I think tour that went across North America. And I think I've opened for ZZ top. I'm over 70 times now across the country. So like when no one gave two shits about me, Billy was always there. You when people were like, eh, this and that, he'd always be like, nope, I'm taking this guy with me. I want him on the road with me. And uh, so he just, I cut my teeth with those guys, man. They're road crew, they're drivers. I'm friends with all those guys. Those guys are like family. So yeah, so we've written a ton together. I have a song on his last album. Um, actually, tonight in Nashville, I'm going to his BMI Troubadour Award. So we've just oh, started cool. this. <laughs> We started this friendship and a uh, hot sauce company and we may yeah, have thought it. We may have bought a venue in Montana. That's on my hat. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So we're working on, I'm not ready to announce that quite yet. There's your hint, but um, <laughs> yeah, so we're, we work on a lot of projects together. He's one of my best friends and I'm so fortunate to have him in my corner. So that's amazing. And then with um, American thread, that's when you had kid rock on the, on your record. And was he, did you meet him through, them being on the same tour together no i'd known of kid rock obviously um and that came through a navy seal from butte uh rob o'neill uh seal team six operator he came oh, out i know that i was gonna say i think I've, i know the name for sure um, yeah, yeah yeah so his brother was the first dj to ever play me on the radio tom o'neill in butte montana he played That's the awesome. america song and when i went in to do my first radio interview ever at like 22 years old um i saw a picture on the wall of a guy in camo and i said who's that and he said that's my brother and i said well what's he do he's like he's a navy seal and i'm like what team and he goes we don't know and he, i said where does he live and he said virginia and i'm like that sounds like seal team six and uh turns out 
I sent him music. I said, Tom, send him this song. I want him to just, you know, a little note. Thank you for your service, this and that. He sent him a song and he was listening to the Freedom's Never Free. It's on uh, that album I did with Blue Miller and Paul Schaefer. And uh, he gets out of the military and says, thank you for treating me so great. Taking care of my brother and sending me stuff overseas, you know, when he was in Afghanistan. And he's he said, I got a story I'm going to tell about, you know, firing the shots that killed bin Laden. And I uh, wrote the book and New York Times bestseller. And then all of a sudden he becomes this big media guy and Kid Rock wants to meet him. And Rob's like, come with me. Let's meet Kid Rock. So that's how I met Kid Rock. Oh, wow. Oh, my yeah. God. You have so many crazy like that's such a rad story. Um, And then yeah. you meet him and obviously you guys click and you work on a, a record with him as well. Yeah, uh, he did my rock. Yeah. Yeah, he did my record, Cowboys on the Run, featured on it. And then I wrote two of his singles um, with him, co-wrote Tennessee Mountaintop and Greatest Show on Earth, which both, I think, were debuted top 40. Um, So they were like, it was pretty cool as a songwriter to get on his records because I was like, oh, sweet, I can finally cuss in a song and he'll put it out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, before that, you weren't cussing in your music. I know, he's a bad boy. He influenced me. My mom's very mad at him. (laughs) <laughs> oh, is that right? That's funny. <laughs> um, well, it looks like, like in 2020, you put out a, a bunch of songs. I mean, you had an album, I think, what, two EPs here? Or, or an album that became part of an EP or an EP that became part of the next album. You put out yeah, a lot what, of music out in 2020, right? Yeah. Was that the American Thread stuff or was that a different one? I think that was that. And then even after that, you had uh, Cars on Blocks. Yeah, that was the BMG. Uh, so that's when I signed my record deal. The first. Okay. You know, but we had the Char- Charlie Sheen came into my life uh, oh, right man. before I got my record deal. And that was through Rob O'Neill as well, because Rob said I joined the Navy because the movie Navy Seals. I grew up watching Navy Seals and Rob goes to meet Charlie. Charlie tweets about me the next day. Next thing I know, I'm on a plane to Los Angeles to go meet Charlie Sheen. I brought Billy Gibbons with me. I was like, I need my dude with me. So I roll up yeah. to Charlie Sheen's house with me, Billy Gibbons, my buddy Mike spent the day together and I'm like, Charlie, you should direct my music video for this mostly stone song. He's like, what? I'm, I'm not really a director. I'm an actor. And I'm like, dude, it'd be cool. And so he wrote this treatment and sent it to me. And I'm like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And we have to do this. And uh, so then he came to Nashville, brought a film crew and brought the car from the movie Navy seals that I grew up watching the old cutlass 444 convertible. And uh, I accidentally crashed it in the video with a stunt guy. We had a lag time between the GoPro and the, iPad that he was trying to watch the road. If you watch the video, there's a scene where the car is driving itself and I'm in the back seat. That is legendary Hollywood stuntman Eddie Braun laying on the floor with a blanket, controlling the gas and the brake with his hands and having an iPad. And we didn't realize there was a lag time between the GoPro and the iPad of three or four seconds. So I'm singing into a drone as I look up and I see the only spot of the road where there's a culvert with like a six to eight foot drop into concrete and he is going right for it. And I'm literally, I'll never forget. I'm saying, I'm mostly, I start screaming to the left and he hits it. And that car dude comes up and I'm in the back seat on a pillow, no seatbelt for filming. We're going slow, but this car teeters and almost goes over on top of me. And I, I tried, there's a little outtake behind the scenes where I tried to bail out of the car, but the energy of that vehicle going like that, I don't think I would have made it. And Rob was actually there. And I said, dude, I almost got hurt. He's not, I'm not, he's like, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm not going to bullshit you. You weren't going to get hurt. You were going to die. If you're in a convertible landing on concrete. You were dead. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. Oh my yeah, gosh. That, that video came out. I remember it was during, uh, 
CRS country radio seminar in Nashville. And someone told me you're not going to get any press, dude. No one cares about an indie artist and blah, blah, blah. You're doing a video with Charlie Sheen, whatever. Like no one's going to come out to Watertown, Tennessee. It was like an hour drive. And that day I look up and I see just media vehicles, like local news, entertainment tonight. And I'm like, here they come. And next thing I know that's national news. Charlie Sheen directs music video. And that led me to sitting down with Michael Knox uh, from Music Knox as part of BBR, as part of BMG, a lot of information there, but they offered me my first uh, major recording contract. So, Wow. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. It only, only took 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, 15 well, years. Nashville is a 10-year town at least, right? Right. right. <laughs> Almost a couple of fatalities, motorcycle wreck, car accident, you know, this and that. And I was like, finally, I walked in like, huh. So this is what this looks like. <laughs> <laughs> but now you have, you know, another big record out now, which debuts on Billboard. Um, I mean, that's huge. Crazy, that's, right? Yeah. Like just bizarre, man. My career, I swear to God, I've done my career backwards. Like I meet my heroes in the beginning and establish these friendships and relationships that most people get after they have hits, you know? Right. And you know, what are you fate or God? Some, for some reason, these people are put in my path and I connect with them. And, you know, I've got a good support group in my corner. I'm fortunate to have, and I didn't this rock thing. Like I went and cut this rock album here in Nashville or these uh, pile of rock songs, you know, cause I've always been too aggressive for country. And I knew that I was always the wildest guys at country festivals and I head bang and I throw my shit around, but I grew up listening to grunge, you know, but I'm geographically from rural Montana. So I'm like <laughs> yeah. geographically a country guy that loves to rock. And I think forever it was so hard for people to figure out where to put me. Cause they're like, this dude's pretty brash on stage. He cusses, he head bangs, he's got guitar solos he's throwing out. And uh, John Lobo over at Broken Bow is like, let's put this dude on rock radio and see what happens. And I think today they said it's number 23. And I'm just kind of sitting here like, and they kind of they're like, hey, and I'm like, I don't really know what radio means, man. I'm just like doing my thing. And they're like, this is a big deal. And then about a week ago, the Billboard article came out. And that's when it kind of hit me as a flood of like, oh, this is really real. I like saw my name in the headlines, Billboard. And I might have pulled over on the highway in Montana and cried for a little bit. You know, I had to do it to get it over with. So yeah. it's pretty wild, man. I'm just just uh, enjoying the ride. Grateful for it. And uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. That's incredible. Yeah, I I came from radio. I did radio in the Bay area and in San Diego for 15 plus years. And where'd you live in the Bay? I lived in, um, I lived right next to Oakland I, on the other side of the Hill. I lived in like Walnut Creek. But, uh, okay. Pleasant yeah. Area. I lived, yeah. yeah. I lived in Fremont. That's right. Okay. I went to the vet clinic up there. So that's yeah, I know kinda, Fremont. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I lived there for about five years and spent the, uh, the rest of my life in San Diego and um now i'm here in nashville but um yeah it's cool to see that i mean that the fact that you like the fact that you're you know doing radio i don't know a lot of people nowadays are like what's you know radio is just such an older thing that makes sense like these newer artists i'll interview they like don't get it (laughs) if that makes sense at all uh so that's cool to hear that you got your song added and like yeah it makes a difference with those charts for sure yeah, yeah, it's pretty wild. And and looking at the active rock charts too, it's cool. It's like Metallica, Godsmack, Stained. And I'm like, these dudes are like from when I was a kid are still kind of Foo Fighters, yeah. course shooting up. And oh yeah. yeah, it's pretty wild seeing my name with these dudes that are iconic that I grew up listening to. So how did you uh form a relationship with Dave Grohl? 
That was uh, Memphis in May. Uh, I do a lot of ambassador stuff. I just started mm-hmm. making videos like barbecuing and then all these companies started reaching out. And that was a survival thing that I could, you know, pay my band and make content, tie it into my tours and just built some great relationships. But with Traeger Grills, they had me come to Memphis in May to play the barbecue festival just at their tent. I was just acoustically performing. People come through, look at grills. And there's a dude in the background with a drummer. We're both bearded guys. And, uh, I heard Dave Grohl was there and by God, I look up and I see a cigarette with a hat pulled low and like dirty chucks. And I'm like, that is Dave Grohl and uh, <laughs> start bullshitting with him. And next thing I know, he's up there playing. He asked about the drum. He's like, what is that? I'm like, it's a cajon. And so we played uh house, of the rising sun. It was pretty cool. And of course the crowd got huge all of a sudden. Cause they're like, Oh my God, Dave Grohl is playing this box drum. He's sitting on it, just rocking out. There's a, there's a YouTube video somewhere where he puts his hands up afterwards and he's like, oh, because he's slapping this box. <laughs> yeah. So hard. Oh, wow. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, he, uh, he literally grabbed me by, put his arm around me and said, hey, let's walk the river. I want to hear your life story. And I'm like, God damn, I've been waiting a long time for you to tell me that. <laughs> and uh, and I was good at deflecting overzealous fans. There's a lot of drunk people there and I'm a bigger guy. So I think they assumed I was security, but Dave's sweet to everybody, of course. But if people were over the top, it'd be like, hey, I got to get my guy out of here. And I think he really liked that. He's like, oh, this guy knows how to work with someone of his level. Um, but I just told him my whole story about listening to Nirvana and growing up poor and all the, you know, just drama and saga of my childhood. And uh, he left. And then I got a text at three or four in the morning saying, hey, man, there's not a lot of guys left like you in this business, something like Rebels or something like that. And he's like, I'm going to keep you around. And so then, you know, for the next couple of years, he'd have me out at shows and I'd fly with the band on their jet. The next year I went to Memphis in May and he goes, what are you doing tomorrow? And I was like, I'm going home. And my wife was there and she's like, I got to fly to a work trip. And he's like, oh, I wanted you guys to go to the Sonic Temple Festival with me. And I was like, oh, should we book flights? And he goes, funny thing, I have an airplane. <laughs> so oh, wow. my wife very quickly changed her work plans and we take a tour bus down an airstrip in Memphis and there's this massive jet and I'm with the whole band, Taylor Hawkins and, and Pat and everybody and Chris and everybody, Nate. Um, and uh, we get on a jet and I was like, this is fucking wild. I'm just sitting here looking around at like, you know, two dudes from Nirvana and all these other guys. And I'm like, what is this life? And I'm like, and he had a cocktail service on his airplane and a lady that would bring you drinks. And I'm fucking deathly terrified of flying in airplanes. I okay. finally can do it commercial, but then you add rock stars and private jets and then I'm extra freaked out. So I'm just like mimosa, 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 mimosa. <laughs> the whole time just wearing out that bartender on the plane. But uh, yeah, we went to Sonic Temple and I was like, wow, this is this is pretty wild. I think that was Dave kind of showing me like, hey, work hard. This could be you could have this. this someday, could be you. So. Yeah, exactly. Wow. OK, so is the the new single going to be a part of an album you have coming out or you said you we have don't a handful know of quite songs, yet. Or? I've cut a really good pile of songs and some really strong stuff. And I, some people at the label are like, how do you know how to write this shit? And I'm just like, I grew up listening to this stuff. Like, I'm just trying to put my spin on what what's in my soul, you know, that Northwest, you know, Pacific Northwest grunge. Um, and I think this, this thing is opening up now with the rock format coming back. I'm seeing it in the headlines a lot, you know? Um, so yeah, so I've recorded a big pile of songs and uh, I'm sitting on them waiting for them to tell me when to pull the trigger and get these finalized, but we've got a really cool pile of stuff that I've been. Yeah. I'm excited. That's exciting, man. Well, uh, thank you so much, Tim, for doing this today. I appreciate your time. You have some amazing stories.
Oh, um, I can talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have one more question for you, and I'd love to have you back on. Um, I want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists. Yeah, I just I think I'm a perfect example of nice guys kind of finish last, and not that I'm finished, not that you know any of that stuff, but I don't know. It's just the grind, man. Like you got to keep grinding, and I've been stepped on and shit on so many times, and passed on by so many labels. And if you feel it in your soul, and you feel it in your gut refuse to quit, refuse to go home. If that's what you want to do and you know it for sure. And anytime I get like questioning, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. Anytime I question that, like the thing that always brings me back is walking out on the stage of the guitar. I'm like, I get sick of everything else in this business quite often, but I do not get sick of performing in front of human beings. And uh, so that when I walk out, there's no drug or drink a booze that'll take away that high of walking on the stage. And I find I'm the most comfortable there. So you got to find that thing. Like if you love that, then pursue performing. If you love songwriting, you know, but it's just got, you got to feel it. And if someone shits on you, you got to take that negative energy and spin it into positive energy. And, uh, and you can design yourself for that by moving off the grid and digging outhouse holes in rural Montana. (laughs) 